Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. Hallelujah, hallelujah. While they're taking that up, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I am excited to preach this message this morning. I am excited to preach this message. I don't know where it's going or where it's going to end up, but I am excited to preach it. I'm going to find a way. The Holy Spirit has taken something that happened to me, an event that happened in my life a few days ago, and literally changed my life. And I'm going to share that with you at the end. (laughs) So I'm going to build the expectation. The suspense is building. Amen. <laughs> I wish I had like the X-Files theme song to play in the background. Like, Anyway. Oh, Luke chapter 4. We're going to do a, just a little bit of reading and then we're going to dive into this message, okay? Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the King James. If you don't have the King James, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen or read it in whatever translation you have. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the shelves in the back. You are free to take whichever one you like and keep it. It's yours. All right, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, praise God for Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Read the next verse. And Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, went into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. Praise God. Praise God. All right, this scene right here, the reason I started with Luke 4.1 is I didn't want to read the genealogy. I'm lazy. I didn't want to do that. But it really is a continuation of what happened with Jesus at his baptism. See, when Jesus was baptized of John in the River Jordan, we know baptism is about the remission of sins, right? You're baptized for the remissions of sin. It's an initiation into the family of God. It's the beginning of discipleship. Well, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, but he didn't need to be baptized. He didn't have no sin to be remitted. He was baptized because Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he won't do first. 
Jesus doesn't ask us to go places that he wouldn't himself go. So by being baptized, he consecrates and sanctifies baptism as something that we then can step into. But something happens in this baptism that I want to just mention for a moment. John the Baptist was told of God, whoever you see baptized, when the heavens open and the Spirit descends like a dove and lands on them and stays, that's the Son of God. That's the Savior of the world. And that's what happens with Jesus when John baptizes him. The Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove and lands on him, but stays. That's the important thing. The Spirit touches people throughout the Old Testament, but it doesn't stay. Jesus is the first one the Spirit comes upon and stays. The Spirit comes upon him and stays. And that's why we pick up in Luke 4.1, it says Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. Listen, this is a doctrine that we need to shout from the rooftops. How much better is life when you're filled with the Holy Ghost? Amen. Amen. How much better is it, Doug? Oh, it's great. Praise God. Life filled with the Holy Ghost. You need, you need the Holy Spirit. You, you need the Holy Spirit to walk you through life. So when we do it at the end, if you haven't been filled with the Holy Ghost, I'm going to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Ghost. But he was filled with the Holy Ghost at his baptism. He was anointed there. And that's important. Because then he leaves from there and he goes into temptation. Into the wilderness temptation. Are you guys tracking with me? He's baptized. He gets the Holy Spirit. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does is not make him dance a little jig. That may have happened. I don't know. But it doesn't say that. The first thing that the Holy Ghost does that it tells us is it leads him into a position of temptation. Now, we need to understand one thing very clearly. God cannot be tempted with evil, evil, neither tempteth he any man. That's in the book of James. God doesn't tempt us with evil. But he will most certainly allow us to be put in a position where we can be tempted and tested. Amen? We will go through seasons of temptation and testing, and God allows that. In fact, he doesn't just allow that. He says it's necessary. The author Peter, when he writes his first epistle, he says, you rejoice. God's keeping you for a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, if necessary, you are grieved with diverse trials or various trials, that the testing of your faith being much more precious than silver and gold that perisheth may be found to glory and honor and praise at the reappearing of Jesus Christ. We'll get back to that in a minute. But the first thing the Holy Spirit does is lead him into a place of testing. And sometimes we get frustrated about testing, don't we? I do. I don't like seasons of testing. I don't like temptation. I don't like knowing that I'm supposed to do this and everything in me wants to do this. I don't like knowing that I'm supposed to go to the left and I'm wanting to run to the right. Do you like it? Do you like it when you know what you're supposed to do but you can't seem to do it? Paul says that in Romans 7. He says, what I would do, I don't do. And what I wouldn't do, that's the very thing I find myself doing. Do you guys enjoy that? Do you enjoy not being able to make up your mind, being wishy-washy back and forth, going to the left hand or the right and unable to stay straight and focused? I don't enjoy it. I hate it. I can't wait to get to heaven because then their sin will be no more. That's, that's, I'm serious. Gold mansion aside, I don't care, but I, I am so ready to be able to say, I want to do this and do it. Or I don't want to do that and not do it. Or not even have the thought of doing wicked because it's not even on the gamut anymore. 
sometimes temptation is not just about temptation. It's not just about testing. It's necessary. It's necessary because sometimes it's not just about what you're facing, but it's about who you are. That's a good word for you. Sometimes the temptation is not so much about what you're facing or what you're dealing with, but it's about who you are. Better yet, it's about who God wants to make you into, who God wants to transform and mold you into. It's not just about the person you were, but it's about the person you could be. See, every one of the tests that Jesus goes through is all about identity. If you look at it, it's all about identity. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. But guess what? The Holy Spirit leads him into that place of testing because some stuff needs to be removed. Not on Jesus. Jesus was just consecrating it. He goes through things to show us how to go through them. But sometimes when we go into testing, it's not so much about what we're facing, but it's about who God is transforming us into. I always go back to the three Hebrew men. Does anybody know their name? Some No. <laughs> Faith said it because she knew what I was going to do. It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Ah, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, never let your enemy name you. Never let your enemy name you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are pagan names for a pagan god. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah means the Lord is my helper, the Lord is my strength, and God is my God. And don't let your enemy take that away from you. I love preaching that message. But I always go back to them, and here's the reason why. Because the Bible says that they were bound hand and foot. They were tied up hand and foot, and they were thrown into the furnace. But then when the king, Nebuchadnezzar, looks into the furnace, he sees them what? He sees them walking with the pre-incarnate manifestation of the person of Jesus. They're walking. But wait a second, they were bound hand and foot. See, the fire didn't burn them because they come out unharmed. And it didn't burn their clothes because they don't even smell like smoke. But what it did do was it burnt off the bondage that had them tied up and unable to walk with Jesus. See, sometimes the trial and the testing and the season of struggle isn't about what you're facing. It's about what God wants to do in your life. What he wants to remove from you. What he wants to take off of you. That's important. Because guess what happens? We'll skip the middle and come back to it. We're going to bookend this. We're going to start with the beginning and go to the end, and then we're going to worry about the meat in the middle. Make a sandwich. You've got to start with two loaves of bread. Amen. Two pieces of bread. Two loaves of bread. That's a big sandwich. <laughs> hey, we could do it, though. Pastor Appreciation's coming up. Remember, I like to eat. Hey. <laughs> but at the end of it, it says he returned in what? In the power of the Spirit. See, the Spirit took him to the place of temptation because the Spirit wanted to bring him through the place of temptation because he knew that when he got that junk burned off of him, some stuff was going to start happening. Now, Jesus was perfect. There was no stuff that needed to get burned off of him. He just was proving a point. But us, when we get led into this place of temptation, we begrudge the temptation so long and so much. You know, your length, the length of your trial is always directly related to the your reaction to the trial? Think about the children of Israel. What should have been an 11 to 12 day journey took 40 years and some of them still never made it because they complained every day. They could have been there in just less than two weeks <laughs> to the glory of God, but they decided to complain. Sometimes God brings you to a trial and he wants to just walk you straight through it, but we react in such a negative capacity that we can't learn what we needed to learn from the trial, so we can't walk out in the power of the Spirit. So guess what? We stay in the trial. 
We stay in the trial because God doesn't want to just bring us through the trial limping and dragging ourselves along. He wants us to come out of the trial in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Some of you guys are facing trials, and God doesn't want you to just struggle and come out beaten and bruised and missing your two front teeth. He wants you to come out glorious and in the power of the Spirit, being much more precious than silver and gold that perishes. That's what, that's what he says. Now let's look at the trial itself. That went over like a herd of turtles. You know, you can respond back. It's good. Preachers like it when you say amen. We like it when you say, yes, that's right. Preach it, brother. <laughs> Come on, you know, if you preach in, a, in a, another, a church of another ethnicity, I'm trying to be politically correct, but I'm not good at it. If you preach in a church of another ethnicity, they preach back to you. I'm serious. You preach in a church of another ethnicity, they preach back to you. Last night, everything I said, they said, hallelujah, thank you, amen. I don't, they said it in Spanish. I don't know Spanish, but, they, they, but it was awesome. I like it when people say amen. You can say amen. Or if you take notes, you know, that's the Anglo-Saxon way of saying amen. <laughs> Preach it. That's right. Let's go. Let's go. Well, let's talk about the trials itself. Jesus wants you to come out in the power of the Spirit. Let's talk about the trials themselves. What's the first one? What's the first one? If you are the Son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. You see, the reason that this is uh, important is because Jesus went in the power of the Spirit, but guess what he was doing? He was fasting. See, he wasn't facing the trial on a good day. See, Satan doesn't like to walk up to us on our best day. You guys know this is the truth. When it rains, it pours. Misery loves company. Oh, we've got all kinds of expressions to say, hey, when the crap hits the fan, it slings. You know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Would you have ever heard Emmy Littlefield say that from behind the pulpit? <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Hey, we'll come back to that in just a minute. You know, you know, since we're on that subject, you know, Paul, Paul, he says, he says, you know, whatsoever was gained to me, I counted as loss. Faith knows where I'm going with this. She can't even hold it together. <laughs> whatsoever gain was gained to me, I counted as loss. Yea, indeed, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered all the loss of all things, and do count them as dung as feces as poop i count them as poop they're worthless you know what poop is it's something that used to be good but isn't anymore it's yesterday's manna <laughs> hallelujah if you can't laugh in church there's something wrong if you can't laugh in church there's something wrong hey amen amen <laughs> i won't let you be quiet one way or another from laughing shouting or screaming oh my you're gonna talk you're gonna talk praise god Praise God. If you be the Son of God, command this stone that be made bread. See, he came to him in his weakness and then appealed to that weakness. See, the first thing, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first thing is appetite. The first temptation is appetite. See, there are three things that motivate all people. Three categories of motivation. I'm serious. Three categories. Now we're going to get into some psychology. You have three motivating categories. The first one is appetite. Some people are motivated by their appetite, meaning what can I eat? What can I, I feed on? But it doesn't just revolve around your belly. It's 
how many people can I sleep with? It's how many, what kind of music do I like? What's my preference? Um, good Lord, how, we can go on and on and on with this. What kind of drugs can I do that will make me feel a certain way? Some people are only fed by their appetite, and their appetite becomes their idol or their God, and it's at the expense of every other person. That's why you got people that will rob their mom to get a fix because their mom is expendable because the drug is all that matters. It's satisfying the appetite. Some people are only motivated by their appetite. And Satan comes to Jesus in the, his weakness and says, hey, why don't you, if you're the son of God, you've got power, you can work miracles, why don't you just command that stone to be made bread to satisfy your appetite? See, there's this great search for satisfaction. You know, the great Augustine, he said, he said, you know, there is a void in our heart that can only be filled by God. What he, actually, what he actually said was, our hearts were created for thee, O God, and only thee can satisfy our hearts, or something like that. But basically what it means is there's a void in our heart that can only be satisfied by God. But when some of us are so motivated by appetite, we're seeking satisfaction. And it doesn't matter if it's through relationships with people. It doesn't matter if it's through the things we eat, or how much money can I have, or how many things can I buy, or how many places can I go. It's just me, 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 me. What can bring me satisfaction? And that's the first temptation that the devil brings to Jesus is the temptation of appetite. The second temptation that he brings to him is when he says, hey, all the power, all the kingdoms, I'm going to show you every kingdom that will ever exist in just a moment of time. I'm talking about the Roman kingdom. I'm talking about the, the Hellenistic Greek kingdom of Alexander the Great. I'm talking about the United States of America and the kingdom when it was prosperous, <laughs> when it was <laughs> I'm talking about the kingdom of China. Just every kingdom that has ever existed or will ever exist, I'll show you in the moment of time and I will put all of them in your power because I'm the God of this world. It's in my power to do so. Now he's speaking to his ambition. See, the first one's appetite. The second one's ambition. What can I have? What can I accomplish? I'm only as good as my last accomplishment. I'm only worth what I can do. Or how I can benefit others. And this is, this is a perversion of comparison. See, comparison doesn't bring joy. Comparison is a thief of joy. It's a thief of peace. But comparison, when it gets defiled, becomes ambition. And it's not so much about what you can do. It's about how much more you can do or how much more you can have than everybody else. I make more money than they do. I have a better job than they do. I have a bigger house than they do. I drive a nicer car than they do. I have a prettier wife than they do. Praise God. That one is true, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Brownie points. We're going to build them up. Remember, Pastor Appreciation Sunday is coming up. Hey. <laughs> but seriously, that's what we do. If you ever notice, when somebody talks, look, I just came back from a retreat with ministers. And I, this didn't happen there. This, it was a good time. But a lot of times when preachers get around, we compare, they compare church sizes. They compare the size of church. And it's never my church is such and such. Or even if we're talking about drivers or we're talking about athletes, we never just say they're good or they're great. We say they're better than so-and-so. You ever notice that? You know, 
LeBron wishes he was better than Michael Jordan, but it will never happen. Amen. <laughs> oh, that one didn't go over well. Michael Jordan's still the greatest. Kobe's my favorite. Jordan's the best. <laughs> anyway, but we do that. We compare things. You know, is it better than so-and-so? Are they better than them? Am I a better preacher? And I'll just say, I'm the best. You don't, because even the best is comparison. I loved, I loved T.D. Jakes. One time he said this. He said, I don't say that I'm the best preacher. I don't say that I'm a better preacher. He said, because that puts me in comparison with everybody else and not in line with God. He said, I strive to be the most authentic version of me. See, that's pulling away from ambition is when you just focus on who you are in God. See, all of these are about identity. Ambition wants you to look outside yourself and outside of God and wants you to look at those things around you. That's why the devil took him up on a mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world because he needed him to look at everything else and compare them one to another and say, I'll give you the greatest glory because ambition is always about who you are in comparison to those around you. And remember, comparison is a thief of joy. Don't compare yourself. Don't compare what you have. Be thankful that what God has given you and what he will give you. And I promise that if you start looking inward and looking upward between you and God and stop looking at how you stack up or measure up against other people, God's going to bring you up. He won't bring you up just so you can put other people down. Because if you're comparing yourself, you're putting yourself in a position of comparison to compare yourself with other people, you do that and you feel pretty good when they're beneath you. But the moment you find somebody that's above you, you just don't feel so good. When you moment you find somebody you think is smarter than you or stronger than you or better looking than you or richer than you or whatever, you start putting yourself down. Or you start making up lies and pretending some things and so you can notch yourself up. Either way, you're in the wrong and you're going to be miserable. The more you think about you in relation to other people, the more miserable you get. Comparison is a thief of joy. My wife tells me that all the time. Comparison is a thief of joy. And it is. Look at who you are in God, not at who you are in comparison to other people. So appetite and ambition. And the third one is appearance. Appearance. Listen, I'm a preacher. I like alliteration. We want everything to start with the same letter for the glory of God. <laughs> for the glory. <laughs> hey, we want everything to start with the same letter. It's easier to take notes and it's easier to remember. But the third one is appearance. And the devil says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off this mountain because it's written that the angels will catch you up. You won't even hit your foot on a stone. Why is he saying this? If Jesus is the son of God, he doesn't need to remind himself that he's the son of God. He knows that. It's so he can look a certain way to everybody else. It's about, well, if you're the son of God, prove it. The third motivator, motivating factor that appeals to many of us is appearance. How do we appear to other people? See, if we satisfy our appetite and we can't stack up the way that we want to in our ambition, then we try to present ourselves in a certain way. This is basically what religion is. And I say the spirit of religion, that religiosity that plagues so many churches, is we want to come in, and I don't want people to see my problems. I don't want people to see my failures. I don't want people to see my struggles. I want them to think that I am all that there is in a bag of chicken on the side, bucket of chicken and a bag of potato chips. I don't know, however the expression goes. I want people to know that I've got it together. So I can't be that because my appetite's unsatisfied. I can't be that in comparison because I'm 
My ambition isn't met, so I'm just going to appear that way. So out come the mask. What mask am I wearing today? Am I wearing the holy mask? Am I wearing the I'm so happy no matter what mask, even though I'm sad on the inside? This is why you got Jesus saying you're whited sepulchers. You look pretty on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. Because you look a certain way, you appear a certain way, but there's nothing but death on the inside. And that motivates a lot of people. A lot of people... Listen, I have known people that are the amazing parents. And it's not anybody that I'm currently friends with. So if anybody watches this, I'm not talking about you. I have known people that are amazing parents. And they love their kids and they're great with their kids. But they get into church and their kids act a certain way and they become borderline demonic. I mean, you see it like fangs come out. I'm like, good Lord, didn't know Dracula went to church. But, <laughs> but I'm serious. Because their kids have now put themselves in a position to taint an appearance. Or maybe they're standing with their spouse and nine times out of ten, they're a great husband or a great wife but their wife or their husband says something that's off color and they look at them sharply and you know nudge them and later they get in the car and they tear them up one side and down the other because their spouse has now tainted their appearance see everybody's motivated by these three factors in one capacity or another but there's one in particular even as you're sitting here you know which one there's one in particular that is your it one of these three things motivates you more than the others for some people, it's just about appetite. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care who I am in relation to them as long as I'm satisfied, as long as my needs are met. For some of us, it's ambition. I don't care what people think of me. I just want to know that I have more. I don't care if I'm satisfied as long as I'm more satisfied than so-and-so. And for others, it's appearance. I don't care if I'm satisfied. I don't care how I stack up. I just want to look a certain way. And one of those three is your it. It motivates you more than anything else. Now here, let's take a little bit of a journey. See, in Eden, everything was perfect, right? The only rule, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve looked at the tree, and guess what she saw? She saw a fruit that was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, and it was to be desired to make one wise. You know what that means? She saw that it would satisfy her appetite. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. It had a good appearance. And she saw that it was desired to make one wise and she'd stack up a little bit better than she had before. So it was appealing to her appetite, her ambition, and her appearance. Oh, it goes even further. It goes even further. The John the Revelator, in his first epistle, in chapter 2, he says, all that is in the world, all that's in it, is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. See, your appetite is the lust of your flesh. You want satisfaction. The appearance is the lust of the eyes. You want to look a certain way. And the pride of life, you want to stack up. Pride is always, always in comparison. Always. Arrogance is always in comparison. You can't be prideful if you're not looking at anybody but you and God. Sin. And they co correspond with spirit, soul, and body. Three categories of sin. Three temptations. Appetite, ambition, and appearance. And how does Jesus overcome this each time? You've heard this priest. This is, this, is a, this is an easy one. He responds from the book of Deuteronomy each time with the word of God. Right? Deuteronomy means second law. 
It's kind of cool. The law was given, new covenant, Jesus came to fulfill the law, second law. But he responds with the word of God, he responds with the truth. But it's not just the truth. See, he's responding with the truth, but remember, he's coming filled with the Holy Ghost. So he's responding with spirit and truth, both. See, John the Revelator, again, in the gospel that he wrote, in the fourth chapter, verse 23, he says, everyone that worships the Father must do so in what? Spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Everyone that worships God must come to him in spirit and truth, for God is spirit. And that's how he seeks people to worship him, is by spirit and truth. See, here's the cool thing. If you want to worship the Father, you can't worship the Father without also worshiping the Son. And you can't worship the Son who is truth without also worshiping the Holy Spirit. So what's really going on in John 4 in one level is he's saying, if you're going to worship God, you're going to have to do so in a Trinitarian way, because God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the first level. The second level is this. Did you know that the Spirit and the truth both have physical, tangible things that spiritually and allegorically become their representation? They do. In the Old Testament, what was put on the altar to atone for sin? It was the blood. It was the blood. Let me ask you another question. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. And what did Jesus do for us? We talked about this last week. This, should, this is the open book test. What did Jesus do for us last week? He shed his blood. The truth shed the blood. Hmm. The truth shed the blood. So if you want to see a physical representation of the truth, it's the blood. You also have the word of God. But I'm talking specifically here about the blood. Because Jesus is the word of God and the word shed that blood. So the blood is a physical substance that represents the truth. And you have another physical substance that represents the spirit. And he guesses what it is? It's the oil. The oil. And you know what they did in the Old Testament? I love this. I believe in the priesthood of every believer. In the New Testament, that you are a royal priesthood you are called to minister it may not be behind a pulpit but you are called to be a priest of god to minister from god to people and from people to god that's what you are called to do no matter how god's called you to do it that is your calling but they would take and they would anoint the priest you know how they did it they would take the blood of the trespass offering and they'd put it on their ear and on their thumb on their toe the right side, because the right side is the side of favor. They would do that to anoint or to cleanse, sanctify their hearing, their works, and their walk. But then, with the blood still there, they would take the oil. And they would anoint the ear, the thumb, and the toe of the foot with oil. They'd put it right on top of the blood. That's good. Praise God. Praise God. They put the oil on top of the blood. See, the blood sanctifies and paves the way for us to receive the Spirit. That's why John says in chapter 7, he says, The Spirit had not been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. Meaning that Christ hadn't taken His blood to that heavenly mercy seat and sprinkled it for the atonement of all sin of all time. He hadn't done that yet, so the Spirit wasn't given in His fullness. But once He did that, the door opened for the Spirit to come. That's why Acts chapter 2 follows the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because Christ did that, and then they were all gathered in an upper room together in one accord, and the Spirit came. There came a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind. Amen. Jesus overcame the temptation by the truth and by the Spirit. That's how we 
overcome. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. That's how we overcome, is by the truth and the Spirit working together in harmony. I even preached this one time, the blood of Jesus Christ is the New Testament anointing oil. Because he was filled with the Spirit and he shed his blood. That means it was Spirit-filled blood that was shed. Praise God for that. That's good. That's good. You can say amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Now I'm going to share something with you guys. Because I'm talking about season and temptation. Testing. Right? We're talking about a season. It was 40 days. See, this wasn't a five-minute conversation. Jesus wasn't fasting for five minutes and the devil showed up. No, he was fasting for 40 days and then the devil showed up and they had a conversation. 40 days. Week. I fasted. By day two, you got headaches. By day three, you got real bad headaches. Days four through like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You might be feeling pretty good, but eventually you're going to start getting weak. And he was at 40 days. He was weak. And that's when the devil came in the moment of his weakness to tempt him. And he went through a season of temptation and testing that appealed to his appetite and his ambition and his appearance. All three of them. Remember, it's not about what you're facing. It's about who you are and who God is making you into. And I have been going through a season of testing. You guys know I'm transparent. I share everything. Last week I shared about having an anxiety attack right before service. I share everything because I want you guys to know I'm not Superman. I'm not wearing blue tights and a red cape. Although I'm weird enough and eccentric enough, I might do it one Sunday if God tells me to. But (laughs) Hey, (laughs) let's start speaking in tongues over here. No. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, let's move along from that bad mental image. Hey. I am not perfect, and I struggle with a lot of things. And there for a long time, for five years, five years, I plant, we planted a church in Mississippi, and I was in a season of temptation and testing. We planted a church in Pennsylvania, and the entire time I was in a season of temptation and testing. And for the last year, almost year that we've been here, I've been in the same season of temptation and testing. See, not all testing is 40 days. Not all testing is just a week and then you're good. Sometimes it's years. Some of you guys may have been been in a season even longer than that, but for five years, I have been in depression. Five years, I have been struggling with depression. Now, depression isn't just always bedridden. Sometimes you're fine, and then it just wipes you out. And here was my biggest problem, is I had no ability to return to joy. In fact, I had no real joy and happiness. I had happiness occasionally, because happiness is circumstantial, right? Joy is perpetual. Happiness depends on your circumstance. There's a difference. But I I would have moments of happiness, but I had no joy. And so I'd laugh and cut up here and there, but then I'd go home and I'd be discouraged. And I've I've told you guys this. I've shared this from the pulpit because God was bringing me through it. But five years I went through that, and I'd have bouts of anxiety. I'd be walking out of Walmart through the parking lot, and I'd just break down crying. No idea why. No idea why. That's a season of testing. And my problem was, is like, God, I don't know what's causing me to be depressed. I don't know why I'm sad. I don't know why I'm mad. I don't know why I have had suicidal thoughts come into my mind. I don't know why. Why are they there? Like, I'm good. People ask me what's wrong. I don't know. <laughs> Lois Ann, I thought she was going to come after me. She said she was going to charge the pulpit if I said I was sad again. <laughs> 
But I'm serious. I had no idea. People ask me, like, what's going on? I don't know. <laughs> Something is. I don't know what. Must be Satan trying to have a Joe Black conversation with God. I, I don't know. But for five years I went through that. And I hated it. And two years ago, I thought, hey, it's because I don't feel emotions the way that other people do. That's what I thought. So I began this process of trying to open the door to emotions. And let me just tell you, that was a disaster. (laughs) The last two years have been intense. Intense depression and anxiety. Meaning pretty much every day I would go home discouraged, depressed, tears. Angry all the time for no reason. Two two years. Five total, two intense. But God. (laughs) What is it? That song, the devil thought he had me. He thought I was done. He thought I would never, I was dead and I would never get, I don't know. But but God, but God, I don't know the song. Amen, but God. Best two words in all scripture, but God. Thursday, I'm walking through my kitchen. Everything great happens in my kitchen. I don't know why, but I'm walking through my kitchen. And as I'm walking through my kitchen, I, this is, I, I have to tell you guys the story. So none of this is, is prideful or arrogant. But I have to tell you the story of how this came about because it's not complete if I don't. So a long time ago, five, six years ago, before the depression stuff started, I could quote entire books of the Bible. Entire books. And I switched the translation that I was using to help some people. And when I switched the translation, all my scripture that I had memorized went out the window. I don't know, it was the craziest thing ever. I couldn't quote them. And for five years, I've been trying to get that back. Like, why can't, it just won't work. And so I told the Lord, I was like, look, I love all the translations out there, but I promise, not all, not all the translations. I love a lot of translations out there. I've preached in a lot. I've said that here. But Look, Lord, if you'll just be gracious to me and bring that memorization back, I'll just stick with one. I'll just go back to the King James where I have all the scripture memorized from, and I'll just stick with it. If you'll just please bring that back, because I miss being able to quote scripture. And I felt in that moment the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, quote Hebrews 1. It's like, well, that would be great if I could, Lord. <laughs> but I felt, him, I felt him say that, which was the first chapter I ever memorized. So I did. I quoted it. And side note, I quoted it perfectly. <laughs> but anyway, I quoted it. And as I'm, quote, uh, as I'm quoting it, you know, God, who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath, by whom he had created the world, who being in the express image of his person, all that stuff, on and on and on and on and on. See, I knew if I started quoting it, I was going to mess up quoting it in front of you. See, God won't let me be prideful in that. So take my word for it. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Anyway, having being made so much higher than angels, having by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For he, wow, it is just gone. All right, I'm not going to do that. I will share this with you, though. At the end, as I'm quoting the scripture, I quote through the chapter, and I get to the point where it says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And I get to that, I get to that phrase, the oil of gladness. 
my depression broke. It was a, yeah, you got to say, yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh, but it gets better. My depression, my depression broke. And the only way I know to explain it is, like, if you ever take a stick, you know, and you, you break a stick, you have all this tension built up in your body before the break. But the moment that it breaks, the tension isn't just released at the point of break. It releases through your whole body. Like, you feel the break through your whole body. And that's what happened to me. The wh- that was released through my whole body. And it was a split second, and then I began to feel something being dumped on me. And it was like getting five-gallon buckets of water dumped on my head. And it was all the joy and the happiness. See, y'all have never seen me the way that I used to be. And I say the way that I used to be is I used to be happy 24-7. Nothing would get me down. Nothing would take away from my happiness and my joy. Nothing would touch it. I, I'd get something would make me mad, and I'd run right back to joy and happiness. And it was, it was instant. I was always excited. I was always happy. And you guys haven't seen that. You haven't known me like that. And so since Thursday, I've been nothing but happy. And everybody's like, you seem really happy. And I'm like, you have no idea for the glory. You have no idea. Because it was just dumped back on me. Oh, but it gets better. But it gets better. Because then, you know, you got to tell some people, right? God does something in your life. you got to share it. You can't keep it to yourself. you got to bless some people and say, listen to what the Lord has done. So I start making phone calls. And I call. And I call somebody. I'm not going to say anybody's name because I'm not going to. But I call somebody. And when I call them, I'm sharing it. And the moment the words oil of gladness leave, they start crying. And they say, you don't know this, but this morning this, this, and this happened. And I've been under the spirit of depression all day long. And you told me that, and it broke. The the depression went out the window. And I was like, well, praise God. And that happened again. And then it happened again with other people. And then I felt the Lord, and he said this. He said, you remember for the longest time you've been praying to to be able to operate in the gift of healing. And I said, yes, Lord, I've been praying to operate in the gift of healing. And he said, well, I want you to operate in something else. I want you to be a conduit of happiness and of joy. And he said that I am going to bless you so that you can spread happiness. Frank asked me this morning, he said, what you got? Is it catching? And I said, oh, yes, it's catching because it's spreading to everybody. But it gets better. It gets better because that's, it's been three or four people we've prayed for and they've been happy. And, you know, it says a merry heart is like a medicine. It does good for the body and for the soul. But here is the fantastic thing. I preached part of this and shared some of this. Granted, it was mixed up and herky-jerky because I'm not good at preaching through a translator. But I preached some of this yesterday. And what was so amazing was two things happened. The first thing is I'm preaching it and Natalie is translating for me. And as she's translating where I'm going, she starts laughing. And I'm like, I didn't realize I said a joke, but hey, man. (laughs) But she starts laughing and she says, no, it's the craziest thing. She said, a little while ago, I had a dream. And in the dream, it was me and my church and my family. And there was a hand that was pouring something out on the church. And she said, God, what is that? And he said, it's somebody dumping out the oil of joy and the oil of gladness on the church. And I was like, hallelujah. Hallelujah. But it gets better than that. <laughs> so we, we do an altar call and everybody floods the altar and we get to pray for all kinds of people. And Pastor Lewis comes up and I say, Pastor Lewis, do you want to help me pray for these people? And he says, no, sir, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me. So I anoint Pastor Lewis and I'm confident that the depression and anxiety he was struggling with is broken off of him. But when I was praying for him, I said something and it came to my mind. I said, that he might have that joy unspeakable and filled with glory. 
Oh my God, that joy unspeakable and filled with glory. And see the passage that we were talking about from 1 Peter where he says being kept, God is keeping you for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That the trying of your faith, well, though now if necessary you agree by various trials, that the testing of your faith, being much more precious than silver and gold that perisheth, than be found to glory and honor and praise at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Do you know what follows that? What follows that? It follows that says, whom having not seen you love, and whom having not now not seeing yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and filled with glory. That the necessary trials come before the joy unspeakable filled with glory. And what I got to experience was a long, long trial. What I got to experience was things, your appetite being tested, your ambition being tested, your appearance. And I could go in through what happened in those five years to make each one of those points. You know, I, I'll, just, I'll just do that real quick. I'll just do that real quick. My appetite, I wanted ministry. I got all the ministry I could handle and all the opposition I could handle in, in Mississippi. Mm, you know what I'm talking about. My ambition being tested. <laughs> Oh, my ambition was tested. My ambition was tested because when we were in Pennsylvania, we got one job offer for $120,000 a year. And then I got another job offer where they offered to let me be over something in the U.S. And they offered me a $450,000 salary a year. And I said, yes, Lord, this is your will. <laughs> and he said, no. That was hard. <laughs> that was hard. But that was... That was my ambition. You know, here you are. This is where you want to be. Let me make you somebody. You'll have all the money. You'll have the houses. You'll have the position. Here you go. God said no. And see, here's what's crazy. If I would have accepted that, that offer only came about six months before God told us to come here. So I would have accepted that. I wouldn't be here. And then you come to this Cleveland, Vatican City. <laughs> oh, you've got all the temptation in the world to put on an appearance. Who do you want to be? We got 386 churches, not counting the fringe ones that split off from other ones. 386 churches in Cleveland city limits. Who do you want to be? What kind of pastor do you want to be? What kind of persona do you want to give off? So appetite, ambition, and appearance, and that's just a few things that happened over the whole spectrum of five years. But we got through that. And God broke all of that and anointed me with the oil of gladness. And I said this, I told Faith, I said, you know what? I said, ministry hasn't seen. I've been, we've been doing all that we've done operating under the bondage of depression. Operating under the bondage of anxiety. Cleveland ain't ready. Because we, we light as a feather now. We're cooking with Crisco, baby. <laughs> oh, We're we, we cooking with the Holy Ghost. We got the oil. It's hard to fry chicken without oil. Praise God. Hey, that'll preach. <laughs> it's hard to fry, fry chicken without oil. But I say all this, and I'm not saying all this to brag on me. I'm not saying that because I struggled. I struggled. Do you know how many times during that period I thought about walking away from the ministry? Do you know how many times during that period I thought about walking away from marriage and my family? Do you know how many times during that ministry I thought about walking away from life itself? That wasn't easy. That wasn't a struggle. So I'm not saying, oh, I got something now. What I'm saying is that I went through something. And when you're going through something, it's because God is about to do something. 
He doesn't want to bring you to the trial and leave you. He doesn't want to take you halfway through it and drop you. He wants to bring you all the way home so that you can return in the power of the Spirit and be something, do something. The being comes first. Look, you can do anything you want, but if you ain't something before you do it, you're going to do it and still be empty. God wants you to be something so that you can do something with Him. And that's what we're talking about here. Amen. But it gets better. <laughs> what is it? Was it Walter Cronkite? Now for the rest of the story. <laughs> Peter, the one that wrote the epistle about trials being necessary, the one that wrote about joy unspeakable and filled with glory, he says something else too. And you know what else he says? In Acts chapter 3, John and Peter are walking up to a gate called Beautiful. We've preached that before. Love preaching that message. But they walk walking up to a gate called Beautiful. And there's a man laying at that gate. And he's begging, asking for money. And you know what Peter says? He says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give unto thee. You can't give what you don't have, church. You can't give what you don't have. But now we got it. So we can give it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And when we pray, we are going to pray for people to get happy. Because church, we have been down and depressed and busted and disgusted for too long. We have been mourning our Christianity for too long. We look like we're attending funeral services, not resurrection services. And we need to change that. We need to get happy. We need to laugh in church. We need to smile. We need to dance. We need to sing. We need to jump a little. And I don't care if you've got a physical disability that prevents you from jumping, that can be healed too. Uh, that man couldn't walk, and he left leaping, and he was happy when he did it. So we're going to pray for people to be healed, to be whole. If you don't know Jesus, the blood comes before the oil. We will pray for you to be saved. I don't care what you got. I don't care what you need. I don't care where you're at. I want to pray for you, and I want you to get what you need, and I want you to leave happy. The book of Ezekiel says that they came in the temple one way, but they had to leave a different way. They couldn't leave the same way that they came in, and that's the way church should be, is we shouldn't be able to walk out the same way we we came in. So you came in unhappy, you're going to leave happy. You came in sick, you're going to leave healed. You came in lost, you're going to leave saved. We're going to pray that there's some transformation. Come on, Zach, you can play. Let's go. All right. So Zach's going to get up here. He's going to strum his get fiddle, and we're going to see some people changed. Amen. Hey.